Open your Bibles to Psalm 81. Psalm 81. This psalm is a psalm for a cause, a call for Israel to repent. Psalm 81 starts as a psalm of praise and then becomes a psalm of admonition or a psalm of warning where the voice of the Lord himself is heard. The arrangement of the psalm is as follows. First, there's a call for the people to praise the Lord, verses 1 through 2. Secondly, a command for the people to celebrate the new moon festival, verses 3 through 5. Third, the Lord's report of his deliverance of his people in verses 6 through 7. Fourth, the Lord's warning about idolatry, verses 8 through 10. And fifth, the Lord's description of Israel's failure to obey, verses 13 through 16. The theme of this psalm is it celebrates the exodus from Egypt. God's goodness versus Israel's rebelliousness. God is our deliverer in spite of our wanderings. The writer is Asaph and probably written to be uh, used during the Feast of the Shelters. So Israel's holidays reminded the nation of God's great miracles. They were times to rejoice. They were times of rejoicing and times to renew, you know, one's strength for the struggles of everyday life. For example, again, talking about holidays, we have Christmas and Thanksgiving coming up at Christmas. What do you think about most? Is it mostly about the presents? How about uh, Easter as well? Is Easter only a sign that spring is on its way and daylight saving time is close by? How about Thanksgiving? Is it only about a good meal? Remember that the spiritual origins of these special days, remember them and and their origins and, and use them as chances to worship God for His goodness to you and to your family and to your country. So let's begin now in Psalm 81, verses 1 through 5. And Asaph begins, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with a lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt where I heard a language I did not understand. As I said, Psalm 81, notice, is a call to what kind of worship? Joyful worship. Joyful worship of God. That is, worshiping the one who delivered the people from Egypt. And it calls for all of Israel to worship God. Kind of like a minister in, a, in church who, who might start a service with, you know, asking the whole congregation to join in worshiping God. David instituted music for the temple worship services. We see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 25. Now, apart from the ritual blowing of the trumpets, as we see in Numbers chapter 10, nowhere in the law of Moses is there any mention of music in connection with Jewish worship. And yet this chapter describes a highly structured organization of 24 classes of singers and musicians. David was a songwriter and a gifted musician. And it's likely that the sanctuary musical worship came to completion under his direction. And the Lord approved of his advancements. 
harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals are listed here in verse 1. The trumpets are mentioned in other places. There were also choirs. Music and worship go together. Worship involves the whole person. And music helps lift a person's thoughts and emotions to God. And if you were here this morning, I think that was one of the greatest examples I've experienced in a long time. You know, it was like walking into the Holy of Holies as we were doing worship this morning. We can't think about our needs. We can't think about our shortcomings and our problems when we enter the house of God and at the same time celebrate God's greatness. Because when we carry those burdens in here, we're not giving God our all. We're not giving Him our heart and our mind and our soul in worship. You know, we're kind of moving our lips and going along with the program, but we're thinking, oh, how am I going to take care of this? And, you know, when I get out of here, you know, how am I going to deal with this? But here in this psalm, from this point on, God speaks, reminding the people of what He's done for them in the past, and He warns them to repent of their sin, especially their worship of the false gods of their neighbors in order that their enemies might be defeated and that they might get blessed. But it declares, as we read, as we read further, they won't do this. They wouldn't do it. What a strange difference. A happy, joyful, worshiping congregation, yet a neglected and offended people. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 29, 13, in words quoted and approved by Jesus in Matthew 15, 8, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. I wonder if the Lord sees our worship like that. They draw near me with their mouths. As I was saying a minute ago, they're honoring me with their lips. But where's their heart? Is it out there somewhere? Is it out in the, is it, was it, did they leave it at home? Is it in the parking lot? You know, or are we just worshiping God outwardly while our hearts are set on sin? Look at verses 6 through 7. Asaph says, I removed, speaking of God, God said, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now these verses 6 and 7, they're a reminder of what God has done. And God's rebuke in this psalm starts out with a reminder of what he had done in delivering the Jews from Egypt. He says, you guys called out to me when you were in distress. And I heard you. And I answered your prayer and I rescued you. And he says here in these verses, look, I lifted the burdens from your shoulders. I freed your hands from the baskets of bricks that you carried for Pharaoh's building projects. Now, what they would do, they would put these straps over their shoulders. You know, they, they it would go around their neck and they'd hang over their shoulders and kind of like saddlebags, if you will. And they they would put these 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 bricks in them and carry them to the project site, you know, that these projects that Pharaoh was building. Or they had this yoke. It was a, like a long piece of wood and they had the, the, the bags on each end and they would be loaded down with bricks. And they'd carry these heavy clay uh, uh, baskets or, or, or bags or, or yokes to make the bricks in these large pots. All day long in the hot sun, being pressured by the, 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 the cruel taskmasters. And God said, I delivered you from that. God says, I saw your miserable condition. I saw the miserable hard labor that you were doing. And he cared about them. And God told Moses at the burning bush, you can be sure I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard their cries to be delivered uh, from their harsh slave drivers. He said, yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come to rescue them from the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own good and spacious land. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. He you know, talks about that in Exodus chapter 3. And twice, twice in their wilderness experience, once at the beginning and once in the end, they came to a place where they, there was no water. They were dying of thirst. Think of it. There was over a million and a half of them making that walk through the wilderness. And when they come to Mirabah, towards the end of their wilderness journey, they'd already seen the miracle of God bringing water out of the rock in the beginning But a lot of these people had died. In fact, most of that generation had died off. And they came to Moses, those that were left, and they said, Look, Moses, our children are crying for water. We're thirsty and we're going to die if we don't get some water soon. Then they started accusing Moses of all kinds of things. Moses got angry and he went to God and he said, What am I going to do, Lord? I can't handle these people. I've had enough. I can't take their complaining all of the time. Then God says, Moses, they're thirsty. Go out and speak to the rock that they that 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 I might give them water. So Moses goes out and he starts yelling at the people. He calls them a bunch of rebels. He says, how long are you going to rebel against God and against me? Must I strike this rock again to bring you water? And he took his rod and he hit the rock again. God told him to only strike it once. Water came out and the people drank. But Moses paid for his, his angry outburst because, you know, he, he didn't obey the word of God. He, he misrepresented God. And, you know, God dealt with him harshly over that. Verse 7, God says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, the pro- and the word test means to be proved or to be tested, the same thing. But the proof of God or the testing of God was always to prove to them what was in their hearts. God knows what's in our hearts. He doesn't test us so that he can see, you know, where are our hearts. He tests us so that we can see what's in our own hearts. Because many times we think, well, we're so we're so wonderful and we're so godly and and, and we're just so right on. But God will allow us to go through testing so that he might show us the things that are in our own heart. Because many times we think we're stronger and more spiritual than we really are. So then God gives us tests in those areas where we fail. Why? So that we can see our weaknesses. So I can see, you know what, God? I can't make it without your help. And I'll never make it, Lord, without you. You see, God wants me to be dependent upon him. Every place where I feel that I can do things on my own, where I feel that I have it all together, I get to a place where, Lord, I don't need your help anymore. Let me show you what I can do. So I show him what I'm doing. And I find out real fast. And I find out a lot of truth about myself. I found out that, hey, I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I really can't do all that I thought I could do. And that my strength, you know, it does come from the Lord. And without him, as Jesus said, I can do nothing. I can do nothing of any lasting value. Without the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're nothing. That's why it's important that we ask for the the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the blessing of the Holy Spirit. 
Because we need him. He's like oxygen to our lungs. He's not a luxury. He's not an option. He's a necessity. We're nothing without him. And so we and we can do nothing without him. Without the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are nothing. And if you don't believe it, God will prove you. That is, he will test you at the waters of Meribah or he'll test you at some other place in your life. And he'll let you see that the corruption and the deception of our own hearts so that we can learn to trust him completely. Verses 8 through 10. Hear, O my people, I will admonish you, O Israel, if, notice, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So God warns the people about their idolatry. This is the most important, important part of the psalm. You see, the heart of the psalm, because it has to do with the worship of the one true God and Him only, which is the heart of true religion. That's why it's the heart of the psalm. This warning is right out of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, where it reads, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And the reason that this warning is so important for us is that this is also the greatest concern of all time. Worshiping idols. Though they might not be made out of wood or metal, or they might not be statues like, you know, most of the time we think about. But it's a serious command here. And it's a serious warning that we need to pay attention to today about worshiping idols, which can be money, your job, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your kids, whatever it might be. Because the great concern in religion and for the great concern of life isn't whether or not we worship a God. In other words, whether or not we're religious rather than being atheists, but whether we know the true God who's revealed himself in history. First of all, in the Old Testament to the Jews at the Exodus and at Sinai. And secondly, in the New Testament to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And whether we obey him. In other words, the great concern today, as always, is the true or false statement. Am I the Lord your God? who brought you out of the land of slavery, and I put in this part in, or not? Am I the Lord your God or not? A question that we all have to answer. He says, you've got to get rid of these gods that you've been worshiping. He says, because you can't serve me and mammon. What is mammon? It's money. But, but again, it can be it can be many things. It can be money. It can be materialism. It can be possessions or things that money can buy. God says, you can't serve me and materialism. They both cannot be God, the God of your life. He says, it's got to be me or, or, or something else. But you can't worship both. It's got to be one or the other. He said in verse 9 here, notice, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign, or the word foreign means strange, no foreign or strange God, which Israel started doing. They prospered and they were blessed. And God made them strong and he defeated their enemies and they were wealthy, but they started worshiping material things. You know, in the comfort and the complacency of their wealth, They forgot God. 
And you know, many times when we're being blessed by God and God's prospering us and everything is going so wonderful, I mean, things couldn't get better, we, we get complacent. And we tend to forget God. And then as they got complacent, because God had prospered them and they got comfortable in their prosperity, they forgot God and as a result, they abandoned God. They turned away from Him. And they started worshiping the world and the flesh. God warned in the Old Testament many times about not forgetting Him. In Deuteronomy 6.13, He said, Beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. In Deuteronomy 8.11, He said, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not, notice, by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes which I, which I command you today. He said, and also verse 10 here, notice, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He said, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of every need that you have. He says there, notice, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Verse 11 through 12. But my people, notice, but my people would not heed my voice. And Israel would have none of me. Notice what he did as a result. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. I think the worst judgment that God can, let, can bring upon somebody is to let them have their own way. To follow the dictates of their heart. And here we see the sad result of the people's disobedience. And this is something God's people should, uh, should know and practice. But they often don't. Looking at their past behavior, God says, look, you guys. He says, I heard you, I delivered you, I instructed you, and I warned you. But he says, in verse 11, you didn't listen to me. Nor did you submit to me. And the amazing thing is about, about this rejection is, notice what he says, it's my people. He says, these are my people doing this. Not the unbeliever, not the world. It's my people who are called by my name, who claim to be my people. Now you expect the world to behave like this, but not God's people. Now this wouldn't be a hard thing to understand if it was other heathen nations that didn't know God, that didn't listen to the commands of God, the word of God. But it's God's people. And because they're God's people, they're obligated by the countless mercies and blessings of God that are the ones who were deaf to God's uh, a word here. That, that's such a bad thing to see. But you know, it's the same problem we see today. The problem isn't that the world doesn't know God. I mean, how can we expect them to? The problem is that the people of God, he said, my people don't know me, or at least they act like they don't know me. And instead of worshiping the Lord in him only, Christians seem to be worshiping the gods of the, of the secular culture. The gods of wealth, the gods of pleasure and fame and status and selfishness. And there doesn't seem to be much awareness of the presence of God even on Sunday mornings. The services are applicable in the sense that they deal with the needs of the people. They come in and their mind is just, Lord, you know, help me with this. Give me this. Give me that. 
But again, there's not a much awareness of the presence of God in the service. It's, Lord, I need this. I need that. Many of the services, they're lively, often entertaining. Like the worship here uh, at the beginning of the psalm, notice it was loud, it says, and it was joyful. And there were instruments. But unfortunately, too many services today, they almost don't mention God. Entertaining, loud, maybe, but no mention of God. We need to be a community of Christians who know and are learning to obey God. And this is exactly what our society needs today. God called out to them here to find their full satisfaction in Him. He said, in your love for me, in your relationship with me, find the fulfillment that you're searching for. He says, you'll find it in me. I will satisfy your every need. I will fill your life. He says, I will satisfy your life. And truly serving God completely, giving your life to God completely, that is a, I mean, it is a very satisfying experience. God testifies of the fulfilling experience of letting him be the God of your life. But God says, they wouldn't listen to me. He says, they would have none of me. They wouldn't listen. They didn't want me. So what does he say here? He said, because they wouldn't listen to me. He says, I gave them up. I gave them up to their own lusts. In other words, he's he's saying, you know what? If that's what you want so badly, then take it. And verse 12 says, notice, they walked in their own counsels. That means that, 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 they, that they, they walked according to their own ideas. And we read in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems, notice, emphasis on seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. There are so many ways that we think are right. Solomon says they all, they all end in death. And God says, because they did walk in their own counsels and according to their own ideas, they became weak as a nation. They became morally, spiritually, and then physically weak. And as a result, they went into captivity. And now they were experiencing the hor- this horrible bondage again. God had first brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is a type of the world. And he told them, you're never to go back there again. And when God calls us out of the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous kingdom of light, we're never to go back. Never to go back. And when the children of Israel came through the Red Sea and he closed it up again behind them, that was a sign the passage back is closed. There's no going back. But he says here now they're back into bondage again. It is such a sad thing when a person has experienced the power of God in their lives and they've been freed from the bondage of sin and the corruption of sin. And they've been blessed by God and anointed by God to see them return to the old life. Somehow, some way, they grow cold and they turn their backs on God and they start to worship strange gods. 
and they end up back again in bondage to sin. That was Israel here. And God wept because of that. Verses 13 through 16. Oh, that my people would let us. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Notice what he said he would do for them. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to me, but their fate would endure forever. In other words, they were doomed forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. In verses 13 through 16, in these verses, God shows us what we can expect. Here God tells us the end result of his people who refuse to listen to him and worship him and proclaim only him. He gives them up to their own lusts, just like he did in Romans chapter uh, uh, one, Romans one and verses 24, uh, verses 26 and 28. Three times God says, I gave them up. And Paul indicates in those verses in Romans 1 that God gives them up and he gives up the unbelieving world to their own ways and to their own plans. And in the case of the world, this abandonment, my God, is to moral. In in Paul's case here, it was abandonment to moral perversion and spiritual foolishness. But you know what? What's the alternative? When When you turn away from God and you abandon God, what else is there? But going back to the vomit. That's all that there is. Well, if the people of God return to him and actually listen to him and follow his ways, then God says, I will bless them. How? I'll I'll defeat their enemies. I'll also satisfy them with the best of all spiritual and physical things. Represented by verse 16, which was wheat and honey from the rock. Man, I'll give you the best. This is the point of these last verses. God says in Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, notice my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face notice, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Notice this is speaking about revival, but how In God's way. It's revival done under God's terms. If my people will humble themselves, it takes humility. And if they will pray and seek my face, and if they will turn from their wicked ways, he says, then, condition, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. And then I will hear their then. Like I said, this revival is on God's terms. Our trouble is that we want is that we want to straighten out everybody else. We want them to be humbled. We want them to pray. We want them to seek God's face. We want them to turn from their wicked ways. But what about us? We want them to do it. But you know what? The world can't do that by itself. What the world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we must bring to them. Second Chronicles 714 and this psalm here, they are for us. It is for us to humble ourselves, to repent and to seek God. And then. By the grace of God, we may truly hear from heaven and he will forgive our sin and he will heal our land. If. 
He said, if in verse 13, if my people would only listen to me and walk in my ways, if only my people would have done that, if only my people would have listened, he said, I would have, I would have defeated their enemies, verse 14 says, and they wouldn't be captives today. Those who hated the Lord should have submitted themselves to the Lord. But notice what verse 14 and 15 says. Their fate would endure forever. That is, they would be doomed forever. God tells them about the blessing that He would have given them if, if they would have only been faithful and true to Him. Even as God speaks to us tonight about those things that He desires to do for us as His child, He would do them if we would listen. He would have fed them, he said, also with the finest of wheat. He said, and I would have given you honey out of the rock. He said, I would have satisfied you. And God's cry here is over the loss of the people. They've lost blessings. They've lost the things that they could have known, the things that they could have experienced, the things that God wanted to do for them that He wasn't able to do for them because they wouldn't listen to Him nor follow His ways. And history repeats itself over and over and over again. Jesus, many years later, cried over Jerusalem for the very same reason. He came to bring them God's grace, but they said, He said, they wouldn't have me. They wouldn't have none of it. He came to bring the people God's salvation. He came to bring the kingdom of God, but they wouldn't listen. And we read how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And as a result, they were destroyed or to be destroyed. And the Roman troops would come in and level the city. They would rape the women. They would kill the little children. They would dash the children in the streets. They'd be merciless in their destruction. And Jesus, seeing all of this, wept. Over Jerusalem. He said, if they would have only known. And he weeps over those lost opportunities today. Over the people's refusal to allow the Lord to do for them those things that God was wanting to do for them. They wouldn't listen to God. Instead of experiencing victory, they became captives or slaves to their enemy. In closing. So. Today, does history change? No. It repeats itself. We see people today, so many people that God loves and God wants to bless. God wants to forgive their sins. He wants to wash them and cleanse them. He wants to make them clean. He wants to give them power over sin, but they won't listen. They won't have any part of it. They want none of God. And so what do they do? They continue in their own stubborn ways. And God weeps over that lost opportunity to share his love and grace with them. And he can see that path that they have chosen to walk down on. He weeps over that path that they have chosen, that, that, chosen, that, that path that will lead them right straight to victory, to defeat, and to bondage. And they're missing out. They're missing out on all the desires that God wants to th- do for them. God said, man, if they would have only listened to me, then I would have been with them and I would have defeated their enemies and they could have stayed in the land. They wouldn't have to gone out and become captives. They could have stayed in their homeland. I'd have given them the finest of wheat, the best of honey. He wanted to do these things for them, even as God wants to do these things for us tonight. 
He wants to forgive our sins. He wants to give us freedom over the world, world, the flesh, and the devil. God wants to give you blessings and the richness of his grace. But many times we try to find it on, on, in our own way, on our own terms. And we turn our backs on the law of God. We don't walk in his commandments. And as a result, we go into captivity, into the bondage of this world, and we're being destroyed. Isaiah 55, 1 and 3. God said, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, God said, and you will eat of what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you and I will give you all the unfailing love that I promised to David. See, the problem is people are looking for the blessings of God and the joy of God in all of the wrong places. Buying things that can never bring them this this joy that only God can bring. And as God sees this happening, he stands by and he weeps because one thing that God will not do, I mean, he will tell us how wonderful he wants to be and all that he'll do for us. But the one thing that God will not do is violate your power to choose. That's God's only weakness or his only limitation, I should say. We are God's only limitation. Because you can resist him. You can say no to him. And God will say, okay. He won't force you. He won't force himself upon you. And he will do his best. He'll do all that he can to persuade you. For you to change your mind, to turn your mind and heart towards him. But he will never force himself on you. As I said, you're God's only limitation. Jesus said himself in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice he stands and he knocks. He doesn't break the door down. There's no threatening word say, hey, if you don't open this door, I'm going to break it down. He's waiting to be invited in. But if you persist and insist on having your own way, doing things your own way, then God at some point is going to give you up to the lusts of your own heart. And then he just stands and weeps as he sees you going down that path that's going to destroy you. May God help us to listen to his voice. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm, God. Father, thank you for, again, allowing us to see the goodness and the love of God. Lord, we can almost hear him pleading, pleading with us to humble ourselves. To seek his face, to pray. God, to turn away from our sins and to turn to him so that he could bless us. He wants to bless us more than we want to receive blessings. And he has all kinds of blessings in heaven lined up for us. And he's just waiting to give them to us. But yet, we won't listen to him. 
We won't submit to him. We don't want to have none of him. And it breaks God's heart and he weeps. He weeps because of that opportunity that he has to give us so many wonderful blessings, but we we don't want it. And God showed us the extent of that love and the blessings that he wants to give us. When he allowed his son to be nailed on a cross. He gave all that he could give. He gave his only begotten son. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never received him. You've never made him your Savior. Well, this is your opportunity. This is your your time tonight. As the worship team leads us in a time of worship. As they do, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer.